Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On April 13th, 1963, 21-year-old Cincinnati Reds rookie Pete Rose stepped up to the plate. Standing across from him on the pitcher's mound, was Pittsburgh Pirates ace Bob Friend, better known as the Warrior. He ate scrubs like Pete Rose for breakfast. Friend wound up and let loose a heat-seeking missile of a pitch. Just as he had planned, the ball zipped and sank as it hurled towards home plate. But Pete saw it the whole way. Friend watched in disbelief as the ball soared over his head, landing deep between the center and left fielders. Even though he wasn't the fleetest of foot, Pete would have easily coasted into a double. Instead, without a moment's hesitation, he rounded second, running full tilt for a triple. While Pete sprinted with everything he had, the outfielder threw the ball to third base with laser-like accuracy. In a desperate heave, Pete threw himself forward, sliding into the bag in a spray of dirt, his helmet flying off his head. As the dust cleared, Pete looked up. The third baseman had the ball solidly in his glove. The umpire brought his hands into his chest, then shot them horizontally from his sides, safe. Pete broke into a smile. He had done it. His first career hit. By the time he retired, there would be 4,255 more, earning Pete Rose the title of the Hit King. His ability at the plate paved his legacy as one of the sport's greatest heroes. And his obsession with gambling would make him one of its greatest Villains. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Welcome to the first of our two episodes on Pete Rose, baseball's all-time leader in hits. He's also on Major League Baseball's ineligible list for gambling on baseball games, including his own. That means he's barred from any professional association with the MLB and can't be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. This week, we'll dive into Pete Rose's rise from unheralded prospect to hometown hero. We'll also examine the beginnings of his entry into the dark world of underground bettings and how it impacted his personal and professional life. Next week, we'll follow Pete's continued obsession with gambling and find out how it landed him on the MLB's ineligible list. As far as athletes go, every once in a while, there comes along a star that has no real discernible talent. That is, they do not excel in any clear way. They aren't the fastest, don't display incredible smarts or instinct for the game. They're relatively undersized and often overlooked by professional scouts. But they have something about them. A swagger, unabashed confidence, an infectious and motivating drive that pushes them past the competition. Pete Rose was the poster boy for this type of athlete. At 5'11", 200 pounds, he was stocky but not incredibly strong. He swung the bat with a tight, quick swing, almost as though he was trying to slap the ball more than slug it. He was known for his unceasing motor, his relentless base running, his charging, sacrificial style. Every sport has these players, these so-called hustle guys. They remind children and aspirational amateurs alike that you don't need the special ingredients of the genetic lottery. Sometimes, success is very much just hard work. But rarely do we count these type of players as the best to ever play their game. Pete Rose was an exception to this rule. He rode the wave of his dedication to one of the greatest individual careers baseball has ever seen, breaking seemingly unbreakable records, winning multiple championships, an MVP, and making an incredible 17 all-star appearances. With such a track record, it seemed inevitable that he would make baseball's Hall of Fame. But Pete Rose wasn't just reckless and bullheaded on the field. He had a hidden side to his personality that would forever prevent him from getting baseball's greatest award. Peter Edward Rose was born on April 14, 1941, in Cincinnati's working-class Anderson Ferry neighborhood. His father, Harry, was a skilled semi-pro football player, and his mother, Laverne, had been a talented high school softball player as well. Pete and Harry's relationship was special and informed much of who he later became. Harry was an emblem of discipline. Every day, in full work attire for his job as a bank teller, leather shoes, a starched button-down shirt, and uncomfortable slacks, Harry would sprint up the hill leading to his house. If his football team had lost over the weekend, he would do it twice. 
Pete watched this dedication and learned from a young age that desire, heart, and commitment could propel you forward in unexpected ways. As a teenager, Rose was lightweight and undersized, but what he lacked in physical abilities, he made up for with endless desire and boundless hustle. Rose was a star athlete at Western Hills High School, playing both varsity football and baseball. He was known for his hard-charging, relentless style. But those weren't the only qualities Harry had instilled in his son. Even though he taught his son to never drink a drop of alcohol and to always get a good night's sleep, the elder Rose was an avid gambler. On the weekends, Harry liked to bet on horses at the River Downs racetrack. It wasn't unusual for Pete, even when he was a young child, to be in tow. That was life in the Anderson Ferry neighborhood. Pete loved going to the races with his dad. He was fascinated by the analytical side of betting. Sure, luck played a big part, but he also saw how when Harry took the time to really comb through the form guide, he could emerge victorious more often than not. Oh, there was nothing quite like watching the horse Harry had picked cross the line in first place. The thrill of victory was sweet indeed, but not as sweet as the thrill of a payout. Whenever Harry won big, he would treat his son to an extravagant meal at their favorite restaurant. Pete loved the satisfaction of knowing Harry's careful strategy had helped them come out on top. Just like his athletic career, Pete saw how putting in the extra work at the racetrack could lead to significant reward. That hard work translated to Pete's performances on the baseball field. He wasn't the strongest, he wasn't the fastest, but he was relentless. It wasn't sexy, but he thrived as the man to push his limits. He was also a natural leader. Pete's relentless intensity rubbed off on his teammates. He inspired them to work harder, run faster, care a little more. He truly embodied the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that served as Western Hill High's slogan, nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. Unfortunately, enthusiasm alone wasn't enough to get someone into the big leagues. When 19-year-old Pete graduated from high school in 1960, pro scouts didn't think he had the physical tools to make it in the majors. College ball wasn't in the cards either. Pete wasn't exactly a gifted student. Luckily, he had another option, the minor leagues. At the time, Pete's uncle Buddy was doing some scouting for Cincinnati's major league baseball team, the Reds. After Pete went undrafted, Buddy convinced Cincinnati's upper management to give his nephew a minor league contract. It was a low-risk, high-reward move. If Pete's physical development took the next step, he could become a valuable player as well as a box office draw. Nothing resonated with fans more than a local kid making good, after all. And if Pete failed, it was no big deal. He was a no-name prospect from Anderson Ferry, not a high-profile rookie who was expected to become the face of the franchise. Pete signed the contract with no hesitation. 
Even though he was getting sent to the Geneva Redlegs in the Class D New York Penn League, although it was pro ball, it was just about as far from the major leagues as a player could get. It's hard to know exactly how much he was making, but chances are Pete was barely making a living in the minors. Today, a minor league baseball player's average starting salary is $1,200 per month. In his day, Pete was making a tiny fraction of that. And while there was a pot of gold waiting at the end of the proverbial rainbow, there was no guarantee Pete would make it there. Generally, only 10% of all minor leaguers make it to the major league. But the long, hard road ahead of Pete didn't bother him. Keep your head down and surge forward. It was what his father taught him. It was the code that would bring him to the big leagues. Pete's bet on himself paid off. After three seasons in the minors, he got the call he had been dreaming of since he was a kid. The Reds wanted him to join them for spring training ahead of the 1963 season. But being part of spring training wasn't the same as making the final 28-man roster. Although Pete had come a long way, some of the Reds' coaches still had their doubts. He was still slow, and he had a hitch in his swing. If Pete was going to make the cut, he'd have to prove his worth in the only way he knew how, with unrelenting hustle. It may have only been meaningless preseason games in February and March, but Pete treated spring training like it was the World Series. After one particularly memorable performance against the New York Yankees, superstars Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle were discussing how Pete had caught their eye. They called him Charlie Hustle. Stories vary on what exactly earned him that nickname. Some say it was because Pete had sprinted to first base after earning a walk. Others say it was because he made a pointless attempt to feel the home run from Mantle that was already soaring over the stands. Whatever the reason was, the moniker stuck. And in April, it was official. Charlie Hustle had made the opening day roster. And with that spot came a $7,500 contract. In today's money, that's about $64,000. It wasn't a fortune by any means. The average baseball salary in 2019 is $4.36 million, but Pete wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth. What's more, his time at the Riverfront Downs had taught him how he could make a little bet go a long, long way. Things happened fast after that 1963 call-up. On April 8, 1963, Pete Rose made his Major League Baseball debut. Wearing number 14, he drew a walk in his first at-bat. On April 13th, one day before his 22nd birthday, Pete got his first hit, a triple off of Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Bob Friend. He was just cracking the surface of his potential, both in the sporting world and in his personal life. Around the time of his Major League debut, Pete also endeared himself to someone else, a young woman named Carolyn Engelhart. In the early part of the 63 season, Pete was at the Riverdowns horse track when he spied Carolyn through his binoculars. 
immediately smitten, he got a mutual friend to make the introduction. However, Pete soon proved that his reckless abandon didn't end on the field. That summer, Carolyn called Pete's hotel room while he was on a road trip. Jim Coates, Pete's roommate, picked up. When Carolyn asked if Pete was around, Coates paused for a moment. Just a second, he said. He'd have to check. It was an odd and slightly unsettling response. The hotel room was only so big. A few seconds later, Coates told her that, in fact, Pete was not around. But after a few minutes went by, Pete called Carolyn back. He was annoyed. He told her in his stubborn and forward manner that by calling, she had messed up his chances with another girl he had brought to the room. For most people, the relationship would have ended right then and there. But Carolyn wasn't most people. She understood that many pro athletes, married or not, enjoyed the company of women while they were on the road. What mattered was that he came home to her and only her. And as long as he was honest about what he was doing during road trips, she could live with it. The arrangement worked just fine for Pete. Shortly after the end of the 1963 season, he and Carolyn got married. It was a celebration of just how fast things were moving for Pete Rose. First, he got married. Then, he zipped over to the Cincinnati Baseball Writers Awards to accept the honor for Rookie of the Year. Then, it was right back to the reception to embrace his new bride like he was smoothly sliding in for a triple. All of a sudden, Rose had gone from unknown prospect to rookie sensation. And things were only looking up from there. By his third season in 1965, Pete had become one of the league's best players. That year, the 24-year-old second baseman hit a 312 batting average, 66 points above the league average of 246. He also led the entire league with a whopping 209 hits. During that 1965 season, Pete was named an all-star for the first time. It was also the first time his gambling habits got him in trouble. And it wouldn't be the last. Coming up, a terrible tragedy causes Pete to lose his moral compass. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. As the 1965 baseball season transitioned into the summer, 24-year-old Pete Rose was flying high. He had recently been selected for his first All-Star game. But around the time it was slated to take place, everything almost came crashing down. In July 1965, Pete was arrested for running a red light in Newport, Kentucky at 4.25 in the morning. 
Located across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, Newport was notorious for its underground gambling dens. And the legality of betting, particularly when it comes to sports, is murky. In 1965, it was only legal in Kentucky and Ohio to bet on horse races, and it had to be done at an official venue like a racing track. To bet on any other sport, you would need to get in touch with an unofficial bookmaker or bookie. Well, usually, bookies worked for a larger organization. More often than not, it was tied to organized crime. The night he was pulled over, Pete was probably coming back from visiting a bookie. But the police officer who pulled him over didn't care if Pete was gambling. He cared that Pete had endangered others with his reckless driving. It didn't matter how good of a baseball player he was, or even that it was a relatively minor offense, Pete was going to spend a few hours in jail. He paid bail with a $100 bill he had in his front pocket. His red light ticket and associated fees put him back another $13.50. All told, it wasn't a lot for Pete, who was poised to sign a $25,000 contract for the next year worth about $200,000 today. However, Pete feared his brush with the law would cost him much more than that. According to the book Pete Rose, An American Dilemma, he remarked to the judge, this is going to cost me 18,000 booze and a $500 fine for being out past curfew. But when he took to the field for that day's game at Cincinnati's Crosley Field, Pete wasn't serenaded by the Boo Birds. Instead, he was greeted with a standing ovation and gifted a brand new TV set for being the Reds' top vote-getter for the All-Star game. As Pete stood there, soaking in the fans' adulation, one thing was clear. As long as he performed well at the ballpark, he was untouchable a star above consequence. With each passing season, Pete racked up more accolades. After his breakout 1965 season, he would go on to have a batting average over 300 for the next nine seasons. It was nowhere near Ty Cobb's record of 23 straight seasons batting 300 or better, but it was still a Hall of Fame worthy feat. 1969 was maybe Pete's finest year. He led the MLB with a 348 batting average with 218 hits. That year, he finished second in MVP voting and won the Golden Glove, an honor awarded to the best fielder at each respective position. And while he kept his nose clean regarding the law, Pete's gambling soared to new heights. He would place bets on anything and everything, going after the rush and hustle he employed night after night on the diamond. Pete bet on everything. He put money down when he and his teammates would play pool in town, and even once bet a teammate on who would be the first one to use the bathroom when the Reds' new stadium opened in the 1970 season. It's important to note that betting itself wasn't outlawed within the MLB. 
It was part and parcel of the clubhouse culture, a way for teammates to connect and participate in shared experiences. But gambling on baseball was an entirely different matter. Ever since a 1919 scandal in which players from the Chicago White Sox conspired to throw the World Series, the MLB had a sour taste in its mouth. Gambling had almost effectively ended the sport. What's worse, if a player is betting on his or her team, they are affecting the outcome of the game. Changing the rules before the first whistle. This is sacrilege in the sports universe, but nowhere more than on the baseball diamond. Even if a player got caught placing bets on games not involving his own team, he faced a lifetime ban. For the moment, Pete wasn't putting any money down on baseball games. Or if he was, nobody ever found out about it. And no one thought to look too deeply as he continued to play top-tier baseball into the next decade. One of his most iconic moments, and one of the most iconic moments in baseball history, came during the 1970 All-Star Game, held in the Reds' own stadium. While the game was just an exhibition and didn't count for anything other than pride, those involved took it extremely seriously. For the past seven editions, the National League All-Stars had bested their opponents from the American League. With the game being held on the Reds' home turf, Pete was desperate to keep that streak going. It was one of the most exciting All-Star games in recent memory, Going into the bottom of the ninth, Pete's National League team was down 4-1. They managed to mount a comeback. And although the inning ended with Pete striking out, he didn't care. By then, the team had knotted up the game at 4-4. They were going into extra innings. The tenth inning passed without a score for either team. Same with the eleventh. By the time Pete got back up to bat during the bottom of the twelfth, There were two outs and no men on base. A 13th inning seemed inevitable, but not to Pete Rose. First pitch, ball one. Second pitch, ball two. Up 2-0 with a hitter's count, Rose took a cut at the third pitch and punched a soft single into the outfield. The next batter up hit a single as well, moving Pete up to second. The crowd buzzed with anticipation as another batter, Jim Hickman of the Chicago Cubs, stepped up to the plate. Hickman took a cut and slapped a soft line drive out to center field. Pete took off like a bat out of hell. He never even considered stopping at third base. Playing it safe just wasn't in Pete's DNA. As he turned the corner towards home plate, the crowd roared. All 51,838 of the people in attendance rising to their feet at once. There was still one thing standing between Pete and a glorious victory. American League catcher Ray Fossey. He stood sentinel over home plate, glove outstretched. The center fielder hurled the ball towards Fossey as Pete barreled down the third base line. It was going to be close too close for Rose. Gritting his teeth, Pete lowered his shoulder. He charged into Fossey at the same moment the ball came into the catcher's mitt. 
The force of the collision knocked Fosse to the ground in a heap, the ball flying from his glove. As Fosse lay on the ground, writhing in pain, Pete scrambled to touch home base. Although it was a physical play, the umpire ruled it fair. Pete had won the game. But it came at a cost. Ray Fosse had separated and fractured his shoulder. Rose explained it away by simply saying there was no place to slide. The collision play went down as one of the most memorable in the history of the All-Star game. It also unofficially sanctioned the home base collision play as a part of baseball. Runners continued to use the play to break through catchers standing in the base path until catchers were outlawed from blocking the plate in 2014 for safety reasons. Following Pete's triumphant moment in the 1970 All-Star Game, he helped lead the Reds to their first appearance in the World Series in nine years. The season as a whole had been a triumph for Pete individually. He finished seventh in MVP voting and won another Golden Glove. A few days after the season ended, Pete brought his father Harry with him to a charity basketball game at a local Cincinnati high school. As the capacity crowd filed in to get a look at their hometown hero, Harry noticed there were markings on the floor for a 40-yard dash. A mischievous glint appeared in the Elder Rose's eyes. He strolled over to where Pete was shooting some warm-up baskets and challenged him to a race. At first, Pete laughed him off. He may not have been the fleetest of foot, but he was 29 years old and at the peak of his athletic powers. But Harry kept egging him on. Pete caved and agreed to the race. If Harry wanted to get embarrassed in front of a crowd of high schoolers, that was his decision. After a quick sprint, it was all over. As the crowd cheered, Pete shook his head in disbelief. Harry had won. The kids packed into the stands ate it up. A 59-year-old bank teller had beaten Charlie Hustle himself in a foot race, and it hadn't even been close. A week later, Pete was at the barber shop when the telephone rang. As the barber listened to the voice on the other side, his face went white. Hands shaking, he hung up and turned to Pete. He had terrible news. Harry was dead. Pete couldn't believe it. He must have misheard. He asked if the barber meant his mother. Harry couldn't be dead. He was invincible. But it was true. That day in December 1970, Harry Rose died from a blood clot in his heart. Pete wept for three days on end. His father was his hero, his guiding light. While Pete hadn't quite lived up to Harry's strict moral code, he had still learned to be honest, to admit his mistakes. But with Harry gone, Pete lost that voice in his ear keeping him on the straight and narrow. And as his star continued to rise, there was nobody around to keep him in check. Not his wife, not his mother, not his teammates. Nobody 
could tell him no. And that was just fine by him. Coming up, Pete becomes truly unshackled. And now back to the story. When Pete Rose lost his father Harry in December 1970, the 29-year-old all-star was beset with grief. Harry had meant everything to him. But Pete refused to let his father's death destroy him. By the time the first pitch was thrown for the 1971 season, Pete was ready to play. And he had a hell of a team behind him to do it. The Big Red Machine was the nickname of the 1970s Cincinnati Reds. The core of the team dominated the National League for the majority of the decade. Some still consider them to be one of the greatest teams ever assembled. They trotted out future Hall of Famers Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez, with a supporting cast that included Ken Griffey Sr. and George Foster. And, of course, Pete Rose. Pete was one of baseball's most fearsome players throughout the 1970s. He won MVP in 1973 and captained the Reds to another World Series appearance in 1975. This time, they were facing off against the Boston Red Sox. After Pete led the team to an incredible comeback in Game 6, the Reds headed into Game 7 with a championship on the line. The team came out of the gates sluggish and slow. By the time the sixth inning came around, Boston was up three to nothing with one out, and all seemed lost. Then, Pete Rose came up to bat. Like most of the 2,500-plus hits Pete had racked up to that point, the ball didn't have a ton of power behind it, but there was enough to get him to first base. When the next batter came up, Pete bounced up and down in anticipation. As long as the batter hit a decent ball, nothing could stop Pete from getting to the next base or beyond. Nothing except for a ground ball to the shortstop. A poorly hit grounder like that often led to double plays. In fact, Boston had already racked up two of them so far. If they got another one, it would be three outs and another inning wasted. Pete prepared to run as the pitcher wound up and threw. The batter swung and sent the ball straight to the shortstop. From there, all the shortstop had to do was make an easy eight-foot toss to the second baseman and Pete would be out. There was almost no point in running. But this was the World Series and Pete was determined to try. He charged down the baseline and launched into a feet-first slide as the shortstop tossed the ball to the second baseman. He was too late. The baseman caught the ball before Pete arrived and stamped his foot on the bag. Pete was out. But his teammate wasn't. Pete's slide disrupted the baseman as he threw the ball to first. It sailed high, allowing Pete's teammate to get all the way to second. The next batter hit the ball out of the park, bringing the score to three to two. All of a sudden, the Reds were back in the game. Cincinnati would go on to win the game four to three, with Pete being named MVP of the World Series. 
when he was anointed as the Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year for 1975, the article would cite his heroic breakup of that double play as one of the season's key moments. The next season, Pete once again led the Reds to a World Series win. By 1978, he had racked up over 3,000 hits and 12 All-Star selections. At 37 years old, Pete Rose was well on his way to becoming one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And it was all thanks to the relentless drive his father had instilled in him. But unfortunately, that was not all Harry had instilled in Pete. Well, he followed his father's example of never touching a drop of alcohol and always going to bed early. But he also took Harry's fondness for gambling to another level. By the end of the 1970s, Pete was placing daily bets on horse races, football games, and other sporting events. He put down about $2,000 per wager, the equivalent of $7,000 in today's money. He wasn't anywhere near bankruptcy, but it was developing into a dangerous habit. And it wasn't his only one. In 1978, Pete had a paternity suit filed against him by a woman he had been seeing down in Florida. Although it was embarrassing to have her husband's name in the tabloids, Pete's wife Carolyn stayed by his side. His infidelity wasn't news to her, after all. But having him bring girls back to his hotel room during road trips was one thing. Having real relationships with them was another matter altogether. And if the articles detailing Pete's case were to be believed, he had spent a significant amount of time with the child's mother. It turned out the woman in Florida wasn't the only one Pete was seriously seeing behind Carolyn's back. In September 1970, Pete and Carolyn's son, Pete Rose Jr., proudly told his mother that he had gone to the racetrack with Pete and they had seen his father's girlfriend there. Carolyn did a little more digging and found out this girlfriend was a woman named Carol. Carolyn could tolerate a lot, but she couldn't stand the thought of Pete flaunting his mistress in front of her child. In September 1979, Carolyn filed for divorce. Pete found out right before he was going to take the field for a game against the New York Mets. It marked a second separation for Pete that year. The first was at the beginning of the 1979 season, when Pete changed teams for the first time in his career. Even though he was in the twilight of his career at 38 years old, Pete was still highly regarded. But the growing rumors about his unstable personal life, as well as his desire to be the highest paid player in baseball, were too much for his employers to swallow. As much as it pained him, Pete wasn't willing to take the lowball offer Cincinnati gave him. After a lengthy free agent courtship, he signed with the Philadelphia Phillies for $3.2 million over four years, the equivalent of about $10 million today. The Big Red Machine was officially disassembled. But Pete was far from done. By the time he left the Reds, he had amassed 3,164 hits. 
He was less than a thousand behind Ty Cobb's all-time record of 4,189. It was a record that seemed unbreakable, like Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hit streak or Cy Young's 511 pitching wins. But if Pete could play at a high level for a few more years, he could do the unthinkable. He could pass Cobb and become the new hit king. He was up for the challenge. Despite his tumultuous personal life, Pete collected another 208 hits in his first season with the Phillies. The next year, he had 185 hits and helped lead the Phillies to victory in the World Series. But as the saying goes, Father Time is undefeated, and Pete Rose was no exception. During the 1983 season, 42-year-old Pete had a less-than-stellar 245 batting average. He had 121 hits, far below his usual standards. It was the lowest total of his career, including the 1981 season, shortened by a strike, in which he had 140 hits in only 107 games. It was also the first time he wasn't selected for the All-Star Game in 10 years. He was only 229 hits behind Ty Cobb's record, but if Pete was going to surpass him, it wouldn't be with the Phillies. At the end of the 1983 season, they asked Pete if he was willing to accept a diminished role on the team. He refused. By that point, team success meant less to Pete than passing Ty Cobb. Not wanting to be the organization that denied Pete Rose's bid to become the all-time hits leader, the Phillies released him from his contract. However, there wasn't the same clamor to sign him as there was when he left the Reds in 79. In the end, Pete signed with the Montreal Expos on a one-year contract that could rise to $800,000 if he met certain incentives. But he didn't care that much about the money. He cared about catching Ty Cobb. Pete achieved the major milestone of 4,000 hits early that season, 21 years to the day after his first major league hit. Fittingly, it was in a game against Philadelphia. But after that exciting moment, Pete did little to wow the Expos faithful. By August, he was hitting only 260. His playing time was dwindling, right along with his chances of beating Ty Cobb's record. Later that month, Pete got the lifeline he so desperately craved. And it was from none other than his former team, the Cincinnati Reds. After Pete left in 1979, the team had gone into a tailspin. With a garbage record and painfully low attendance, Reds president Bob Housem needed a way to re-inject some life into the fan base. He figured there was no better way to do that than to bring the franchise's most famous player back home. He called Pete and told him he wanted him back on the team, and not just as a player. Housem also wanted Pete to be the team's manager. It was the perfect opportunity. Not only would Pete be returning as the hometown hero, but he wouldn't ever have to worry about how much playing time he would get. If he needed more at-bats, he could just put himself into the game. 
After five and a half years away, Pete was poised for a triumphant homecoming. The Expos weren't particularly attached to Pete, and they happily traded him back to the Reds in exchange for a journeyman infielder named Tom Lawless. On August 16, 1984, it was official. Pete Rose was once again a Cincinnati Red. But the move wasn't without controversy. Although the position of being a player-manager wasn't new, it was more popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Since 1960, only five other players had done it, and very few managed to serve in both roles with any real success. Pete tried to soothe the critics by promising he wanted to instill two rules in his team. They were the same rules his father Harry had instilled in him. Be on time and play hard. As for his own playing time, he knew he couldn't put himself in the lineup every single day. But as long as he could still hack it, and the pitcher wasn't a lefty, he was going to take the field. Pete's first game back in his hometown was August 17th. More than 35,000 people showed up, over twice the Reds' normal attendance that year. He didn't waste any time giving the fans what they wanted. Pulling on his old number 14 uniform, he took his customary place in the batting order. On his first at bat, it was as if Pete picked up where he had left off after the 1978 season, his last as a Red. He launched a ball deep into center field. As he ran down the baseline, the years seemed to fall away. He sprinted past first without a second thought of stopping. Second base wasn't good enough either. As he neared third, Pete launched into a head-first slide, tagging the bag in a spray of dirt. Safe. It was the first of another 35 hits he'd have that season, in only 26 games. Pete's return to Cincinnati hadn't only re-energized the fan base, it had re-energized him as well. All of a sudden, he was only 94 hits behind Ty Cobb. The all-time hits record was within reach, and it looked like he'd break it as a red. The 1985 season dawned with a sense of palpable excitement. The press swarmed the city like never before, eclipsing anything Pete had seen in his heyday. Everyone wanted a piece of Pete Rose and he was happy to oblige them. Before the season started, Pete made an agreement with the Sporting News to make daily journal entries throughout the season. They'd be compiled into a paperback called Countdown to Cobb. He also made a deal with the Cincinnati Inquirer to allow a young journalist named John Arardi to closely cover Pete and the team throughout the season. As part of his background research, Arardi interviewed Pete's mother, Laverne. He had no idea. It would lead to one of the most stunning revelations in the history of sports. While they got to know each other, Laverne brought up the previous season's World Series between the San Diego Padres and the Detroit Tigers. She told Arardi that Pete had lost a bundle of money by betting on the underdog Padres. Arardi did a double take. 
He wasn't a seasoned sports writer, but he knew that if what Laverne said was true, it would be grounds for Pete to be banned from baseball. For life. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. Next week in part two, we'll follow Pete Rose's attempt to break the all-time hits record. But as the truth about his gambling habits comes to light, his status as one of baseball's all-time greats is placed in jeopardy. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Pete Rose, An American Dilemma by Kostya Kennedy, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all their podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, Just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 